Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, host of The Big Picture. Did you just see the latest tentpole blockbuster? Or a surprisingly fun new movie on a streaming service? Or maybe you just want to bone up on the greatest films ever made? From reviews to rankings, career retrospectives to movie drafts, and everything in between, The Big Picture is here for you. Listen to The Big Picture for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Jeff Daniels is here. I wish we were doing this in person. You've never been on my podcast. I've had so many great actors. You'd always been on the radar. I never know with you. you sometimes you're doing press. Other times you aren't. Are you, are you like a media-friendly guy, would you say? Good. I confuse you. I like yeah. that. I like where you're at right now. You're yes. an enigma. Uh, perfect. Wonderful. I would have loved to have had you in my studio. You, you're saying sometimes you'll get Jeff Bridges. Who else do you get confused with? Uh, for a while, it was William Hurt, Bill Pullman, and I have the same problem. You know, Bridges. You know, I I, I remember I talked to Jeff once, and and uh, I saw him at somewhere in L.A. and uh, would love to work with him. I've I've been a fan of his since the that Texas, the last picture show, right? Yeah. And I and I I I, I get confused with him, but I know that people go up to Jeff Bridges and say, "My God, Dumb and Dumber." That might have been your best. That <laughs> might have been your best work. I apologize to him for that, though. I'm though I am very proud of that movie. I must say, that's like a Jeff B thing. People just getting the Jeff and the B, and then the, then people are idiots. Whatever. What, it's it's the Jeff, and then their brain stop. What is the movie people mention to you the most? Because you've made so many good ones, and you know, I feel like you've been in my life ever since. I saw Terms of Endearment, which I was a teenager, and that was such an impactful movie. And then, you know, four days, four decades later, still cranking. Yeah, I, I uh, certainly Dumb and Dumber. Uh, yeah, reached a wide variety of people. Um, uh, and re- excessively rewatchable too. It's it was on the, all the time. That, which is what for a comedy for the jokes to still hold up, even though you know it's coming. That's, uh, I don't know how you do that, but the Farrelly brothers, you know, struck gold with that. Gettysburg comes back. Um, hmm. um, the TV stuff now, Newsroom would probably be the, the other one that really just people jump on me for, which is good. It's all good stuff. You want, you want one movie or one TV show in your career that outlives you. And right. I've got, I'm lucky. I got a few. Well, going way back to Terms of Endearment, you're in that movie and it's just completely loaded and it's the most Oscar Beatty movie of all time. Right. It's got oh, yeah. just an iconic Nicholson performance, James L. Brooks, Shirley MacLaine, Deborah Winger, who's like an A plus list star at the, at the time. Yeah. And you're like the new guy in it. <laughs> I'm the 20 year old. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I w- I took the part that no one else in Hollywood would take because he was so unlikable. Yeah, you, you cheat on Deborah Winger of all people when she has cancer. Oof, uh, not good for my brand. Uh, my client's going to pass on that. My, you could just hear it, and I was like, "Going, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm off Broadway. I'll do it." 
I learned so much on that movie. So much. Watching Jack work. Um, man, I remember Jim Brooks came up to Jack and said, uh, Jack, I want to try something. We're going to go out on a limb a little bit with this idea. And Jack said, I like going out on limbs. I get in trouble out there. You know, and I, I, I was, I would go to the set, not work and watch Jack. Wow. And, and it was a great education on, on that kind of freeness that film acting allows you that Jack doesn't know what he's going to do on take three. And it's, it was like, Oh wow. The freedom of that. Now you got to be Jack to be able to do that. But I also got to sit there and watch dailies. Jim Brooks would let me come in and watch Jack's dailies or any dailies. Not, he wouldn't let me watch it, my stuff, which was fine. But I remember seeing the two shot of Jack and Shirley in the kitchen where he tells her I'm one of 106 astronauts, you know, and he does his thing. And they did like 10 takes of it. Mm. And I saw him when he wasn't good. I, the first few takes, he didn't quite know it. He didn't, he wasn't, it just wasn't. And then about take six, it happened. And then seven, and then eight was different than seven, and then nine, and then 10. And now 10 surely doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. And after that, Jim Brooks turned to me and said, which one do I use? You know, and it was just such an education on, on, on front of the camera film acting. Your guy, Aaron Sorkin, had him on the podcast a few years ago and was asking about the famous Few Good Men story about Jack, where he does the Colonel Jessup scene. And then he's supposed to leave so they can get the shots of, all right, all right, Tom Cruise, you're going to do your stuff. Jack, you can go over there. Then we got to get Kevin Pollock's. And Jack's like, no, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to, I'm going to do it every single time. I love this. I don't want to leave. Yeah. And is in all the takes. And, and Sorka was saying it was such like a window into why that guy has been such a success that yeah. he wouldn't have thought of leaving. Like, why would I leave? I get to keep acting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a great lesson. It's a great lesson, especially courtroom scenes and dinner scenes. They're just death. They take weeks to shoot because you got to go so many different angles. Right, right. You sit there forever that you finally get around to you and you don't know what you're saying anymore. Yeah. You know, I've had so many actors and actresses on here at this point, and a recurring theme seems to be, yeah, obviously the talent is a huge piece of it, but you know, some sort of luck early along the way, like some role you got or somebody who passed through your life, stuff like that. In terms of endearment, looking back, it's kind of insane that you, that that's your first movie. Think of all the first movies you could have had. Like well, first big movie, there, I mean. There was one. I mean, I was in ragtime, but I had like two or three scenes. I yeah, was, I mean I like was, real part. Yeah, a like real big, part, big ass yeah, part. Was terms. Yeah. And, and, it, and again, it was because nobody else wanted it. Yeah. And, and I was, I was cheap. I worked for the minimum. So it was, it, and Deborah, I met with Deborah. She okayed me. Um, Ooh, so she had okay power at that point. Oh yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, and should have, um, right. but yeah, I remember, and then it came out and, um, it came out in Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving and Raiders of the Lost Ark was kind of the big thing. And yeah. there were a lot of those kind of movies. So there really wasn't a well-written character driven with smart, funny dialogue. We hadn't seen one of those in a while. So we, plus we had those three megastars. So we jumped right out. Right. And then the Oscar nominations came out. And as a friend of mine said, even the guy who combed your hair got nominated. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I didn't. Yeah. New guy. It was okay. It was okay. New guy bias. No, it was okay. I was 28 and, uh, it was, it was, I had to watch the Oscars at home and, and I was okay. Uh, you know, you're going, what? But you're, it was good. It was good. And then right after that, I got the purple Rose of Cairo with Woody Allen. And that was a big break, huge break. Right. You know, it's funny. You mentioned how people hate that character. There are actors that have trouble shaking that. Like I would say, I thought Tony Goldman and ghost. We just did Ghost for this podcast. We called the Rewatchables, and he's so hateful in that movie because basically he got Swayze killed, and it was hard to see him in other movies without thinking he was the guy from Ghost. Like you take this baggage yeah. when you're the audience to the next movie with this person, and you were able to shed that obviously. But I remember that at the time, hating your character so much in terms yeah. of endearment. 
Oh, that was, yeah, that was the running. I'd get in a cab in New York. He goes, you were in terms of endearment. I said, yeah, God, I hated you. Thank you yeah. very much. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, you, you get that. You know, Redford said when he did Sundance, uh, I mean, this he's gorgeous anyway, but that's kind of what he got were those quiet, science, great, handsome, leading men mm. roles. And, and I certainly got the either the cheating husband or the flawed hero or the, the secondary character who wasn't up to the qualities of the leading man, something. That's kind of what I got stuck with. And, you know, it took something like Dumb and Dumber to blow that all up which is one of the reasons I did that. So. I would say something wild for me. That was another. Was, yeah. That kind of opened the ceiling in my brain for you, where I was like, oh, the guy from Terms of Demon, look at this. Now he's doing yeah, this stuff. And, and it, it was kind of like, all right, I don't know what to expect from him now. Yeah, and it really, that was me ripping off Jack Lemon and Dick Van Dyke. If those two <laughs> right. guys had a baby, that's who Charlie Driggs was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the kind of movie that, when I, as I was growing up, they made those movies and that, that movie was kind of an homage to those movies. And now they, those movies don't get made anymore like that. Where no, you just take two stars and you just kind of unleash them. Now you'd be wearing like a comic book suit. Comic book suit in front of a green scene, talking to a tennis ball. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess now they just kind of morphed into TV and stuff like that. Well, it's, what's happened is, and Jim Gandolfini started it with The Sopranos, he and David Chase. Mm. It, the, all the writing's gone gone there to the cable side you know hbo netflix showtime hulu you name it there's 20 of them now that's where all the writers went they were they were respected there uh they didn't like hire you to write three drafts and then fire you and have somebody come in and punch up the jokes the next time you know you're on a set and you realize that seven people have had their hands on this and it looks like it right and and so that that's where all the writing went which is which is where all those movies like something wild or Jane told me that. Jane Fonda said, the movies I made, they wouldn't make now. But the writers have gone on the other side of the of the dial, so to speak. And that's that's good. For guys like me, that's good. You know, I had a couple of years ago, Paul Thomas Anderson was on here. And we were talking about Boogie Nights, which was this, you know, the second thing he ever made. And at that point, 1995, 96, your dream is to make a giant big movie with a bunch of stars. And I was like, nowadays... Wouldn't that be like an eight episode, I don't know, Amazon show or HBO show and you get more yeah. money and you get to explore the characters further. And he was, and like, you yeah, I probably would have done that. You have the production value. You have the money to do it right. Um, and as an actor, you get to, you get to shoot the novel. You're not shooting the short story, the 90, the hundred page, a hundred minute script with, you know, you, you've, you've got, you've got, you get more to do. And, and the writing's better. And they, with Godless, with Netflix, you know, they, Scott Frank had that Western for, I remember we shot The Lookout in Winnipeg in 2003 or something. And he said, I've got this two hour Western, nobody will make it. Yeah. And he kept trying for 10 years. And then he finally went to Netflix and they'll go, can you make it seven hours? You know, and that's, it's just, it just changed. For guys like me, it's gold. It's why I'm still in the business. Well, you, you've, you, I don't want to say you've reinvented yourself, but I like how you've always moved in different directions. And I think that started in the eighties where not really ever knowing what to expect from you. I mean, in 94, I think it was 94, you made speed and dumb and dumber in the same year. Yeah. And those are two of the most rewatchable movies of the last 30 years. Speed is iconic. I mean, that, that basically created the summer blockbuster. I, you could say Jaws yeah. did and movies like that, but I remember watching that happen before it came out because that was the height of the premiere magazine and the whole movie yeah. culture and kind of yeah. knowing what was coming. And the speed is like, this movie's getting such insane buzz. They're moving it up. It's like, whoa, they're moving up speed. I didn't even know what speed was. So they're yeah. moving it up. Yeah, they yeah. want to get a jump on the summer. What? What does that mean? It's a story and, about a bus. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go under 55. You know, but you're in it. And spoiler alert, otherwise everyone's seen it. But, you know, that was a great gimmick of like your guy dies halfway through. That wasn't like a common movie thing. Now they try to swerve us like that all the time. But in the mid 90s, when you died, it was like, holy shit, they killed Jeff Daniels. How did they do that? <laughs> I, when I got that script, the career wasn't in a great place at that point. And I got that script and uh, 
I died on page 22. I died in the elevator shaft. Mm. Yeah, Keon and I were in the elevator looking for whoever, and I fall down and I die. I'm going, the career's in trouble, but it's not in that much trouble. Pass. And they go, no, 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 we got another draft. You die later. Mm. Oh. He's like, how many pages yeah. later? Yeah, like the page, page, page 85 or something <laughs> out of 120. And in the house. Yeah. And I said, all right, I'm in. And and I uh, got to work with Keanu, who was at the height of his fame, or well, pre pre Matrix. Um, and I remember the scene where I go into the house, and then I turn and look at the thermostat, and I realize it's hooked up to the bomb. And then yeah. a second later, the the house blows up with me in it. And I'm going, how am I going to do this? And I remember an interview that Roy Scheider did, and they asked Roy, Roy, when you saw that shark in the water and you were standing at the end of the boat, the look on your face, oh my God, what acting. Roy said, I just looked down, scrunched my cheeks up. And then when I saw the shark, I let him drop. It was just a a cheek thing. Mm. So I did that. And And it's the most memorable face in the movie. Critics say that moment. That moment. <laughs> Film institutes are studying that moment. I'm going, just dropping some cheek muscles. I think it's almost a perfect action movie. It's exhilarating the whole time. It's got a huge star. It's got a great sidekick. And then Sandra Bullock at an awesome point in her career when she's not a star yet, but you can tell she is. Great people yep. on the bus. Yeah. totally rewatchable you can hop in at any point it's yeah it's perfect and it's been funny that he's been able to three different times kind of rejuvenate that kind of action he does it with the matrix and then he comes back as john wick in this decade the same kind of thing these rewatchable action things were you surprised that he was in an action movie in 94 do you see do you see that coming in with speed just keanu is the lead as like this Oh. You know, superhero type, because he hadn't played anybody like that before. I Yeah, but no, I didn't, never thought about it. I'm going, oh, yeah, Keanu, of course, he fits that kind of, you know, shoom, come in. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, the fact that he's still going, I admire anybody who can last decades, you know. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's an achievement in this, you know, business where you find out you're over on Tuesday. Right. So you're in with him. He becomes a super duper star. Same year in with Jim Carrey. Yeah. Who has one of the great years of all time. He's in that yeah. movie. He's in Dumb and Dumber. He's in Ace Ventura. He's in The Mask. All in the same year. He rips rips off three mega hits. And by the end of it, he's an A++ list superstar who can make every movie he wants. But when you filmed Dumb and Dumber with them, he wasn't famous like that, right? No. We, and, and that's you're right. It was, uh, it was uh, Jim Carrey became Jim Carrey. Yeah. Um, when we were shooting Dumb and Dumber, he had he had shot and released Ace Ventura, which did well, but was what it was. And he had shot Mask, and the word was it was good, but they were still cutting it. So we're starting to shoot Dumb and Dumber. So we're into we're halfway through. We're in the spring, so we're halfway shooting. It's, it's early May. Jim leaves on a Friday night, flies to Cannes to do the premiere of mask Mm. on Saturday and then flies back to shoot on Monday back in Salt Lake city or wherever we were. And when he came back from the premiere of mask at at the Cannes film festival, it was starting to happen. And Jim was the same. Uh, We finished shooting. And then six months later when we were doing press for dumb and dumber, it was, it had happened. Jim was still there. I mean, we were still still friends and good friends, but there were 10 people around him and it was just vom. I saw it happen to Chris Reeve. I saw it happen to Bill Hurt, Keanu a little bit indirectly. Um, yeah, I've been to Emma Stone, Ryan Reynolds. I did a little independent movie with them before they were, you know, they blew up. Yeah. I'm kind of that guy you stand next to if you want to blow up. <laughs> I didn't see that on your IMDb, but that's that's a, that's a good quality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's people always say when that happens, the person doesn't change right away, but everything around them changes. 
and how they, they're the same person, everything around them is different and how they deal with that ends up shaping what happens next. It's, it's whether it happens to Jim Carrey or someone like me, uh, the people around you change. Yeah. And, and just little things, you know, their voices get higher. They talk faster. Just, just some of that stuff happens that you, it throws you off. Um, you know, they everybody wants something. They want your, their piece. Uh, yeah. They're entitled to part of what your success is. They're entitled to some of that. What do you mean? No. Why are you telling me? No. Right. So at that, they don't teach you how to deal with that in star school. You know, you got to kind of how to learn how to deal with that. You mentioned Chris Reeve and William Hurt. Is that like a, like a Broadway thing? Like a we were, we were, stage uh, actor thing? Stage actor. We were in an off-Broadway play together in 77, I think, called My Life at Circle Rep. And we shared a dressing room. Bill Hurt, Chris Reeve, and me. Holy shit. I was 22. Bill was trying to decide whether he was going to take Love Story 2 if they couldn't make a deal with Ryan O'Neill, Ryan wanted more money than they were willing to pay. And Bill was kind of on standby and he was wrestling with the decision. And then Chris Reeve came in with a week to go in the run of this play that had been killed. We were playing to 20 people a night and said, I got to fly to London after Sunday's matinee and screen test for Superman on Monday, but I'll, don't worry. I'll be back on Tuesday to finish the run. And Bill, Bill tried to talk him out of it. He said, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You're an artist. You cannot do that. All legit reasons. And yeah. I'm, I'm over there sitting eating M&Ms going, wow, can I go? You know? And then he came back and he got it. He got it. Well, wasn't they when they were cast? I just read a whole thing about this movie and they were trying to cast it. They're trying to cast all these stars. And none Superman? of the stars wanted to wear the suit. And they realized they had to get somebody who was relatively anonymous. Because like Warren Beatty was supposed to be Superman at one point. And it's all about, you have to look incredible in that suit. And it's not like Batman where you can stack it up in the chest and add some things. It's like, you're, you're pretty naked in there. So they yeah. realized that's go with the unknown. But Yeah, that makes sense. Got to get, nobody will do it. All right, let's get the best unknown we can get and let's break somebody. And mm. and Chris Reed broke with that role. Well, and then did. use use the supporting actors to put your star power. Yeah, surround the him. other room. Yeah. William Hurt, he comes out of the gate and he's in like seven famous movies in a row. Mm -hmm. And I think got nominated for like Oscars like three, four years in a row, but it was always like a famously intense guy. Was he like that in the 70s? I've, I've always been fascinated by oh, him. Oh, yeah. And Bill's always, he's always been really focused, really intense. He's an artist, man. He's an yeah. artist. And um, and if it if it's not right for him, um, he doesn't do it. Uh, he's one of those guys. Deborah was Deborah Wingers like that as well. Um, uh, but yeah, Bill Bill's really intense, really intense. He's a good guy, you know, a good guy. I got along with him fine. You know. When he, when Bill would get too intense, I'd go, Bill, how about them Yankees? Come on. <laughs> Did you audition for Big Chill? No. No. Have you been in a movie with him? I don't think no. you have. I've been, yeah. I've been, I've been in, I don't think so. Well, I did a TV thing with Bill for 5th of July. No, that was Richard Thomas. Uh, Bill had done the original, one, the, a play I did in 1978 at Circle Rep Off-Broadway. Bill Hurt played the lead role, and I was played his lover uh, in a play called Fifth of July by Langford mm. Wilson. That's where we worked together. So when you did Dumb and Dumber, how much ad-libbing was in that? Oh, uh, what? How much ad-libbing? How much did they let you loose on that one? Um, I wouldn't say there was a lot. Uh, there was some. But Jim would kind of let me know. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to riff on the song, the Mockingbird song. Okay. And you just go with him. Um, but it so was it's almost like girl. stage acting. Well, but like, it's, well, it's like it's, rolling off somebody's performance, but you don't know what quirk they might throw into it. Yeah. But it's, it should be all, it should also be film acting. You yeah. know, uh, it's act react. Uh, Spencer Tracy is one of the best reactors we've ever had. And but people are so busy acting in front of a mirror 
that that it looks like it and it feels like it. But when you start to go play ping pong back and forth with somebody like Jim Carrey or Meryl Streep, um, my God, you're you're it's it, it, they're doing half your work for you. With Dumb and Dumber too, it was you know the studio wanted a comedian to go next to Jim. Yeah, Jim Jim wanted an actor because I need somebody who's going to react and make me listen. And it's a buddy-buddy movie. I am a solo performer. I need someone who's going to make me listen. It's two guys, not one. And so he really insisted on an actor. And and when you go in, uh, and one of the reasons they, they that he didn't want a comedian was that they would try to top each other, yep. like comedians do. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. That's not what we're doing here. And so, so how do I fit in? And I made the decision, I think on day two of shooting, where the light bulb went off, I'm going, oh my God, I'm, I'm the puppy on a leash. Lloyd is tugging the leash. You know, Lloyd is the leader because Jim's going to lead anyway. It's his yeah. instinct. So you just follow, you go wherever Lloyd wants you to. And so when he pulls you, you know, just put yourself on a one second delay. Harry, what? You know, just put yourself, just let him pull you through the scene. And then it worked. Then it worked. You know, they make that mistake sometimes with with comedies where they'll put the big ass comedians together. And you're right; they when they try to start topping each other and competing with each other, you can kind of feel it in the movie. And it, it is a smart yeah, way to do it. I mean, improv has a place. You know, like the most annoying sound in the world in Dumb and Dumber. That was Jim yep. just throwing something there. Uh, <laughs> Dumb and Dumber Two. There was more ad libbing. He was just trying more stuff, and I would just roll with him. But yeah. I, you know, I stuck to the script. I, you know, I haven't taken any improv classes. So, you know, I don't, there's a whole, you got to learn how to do that. And, and I, I just never did. And so it was, uh, there wasn't that much ad living on the first one. It was pretty, there was a lot of precision. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to get the setup right to get the joke. And if you fuck the setup up or if you, are trying to top his joke with something else, then we didn't get the first joke. And, and it's, so there was a, there was kind of a, 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 not a scientific approach, but a, a one and a two and a three, uh, and then hide that. Hmm. Uh, there was a lot of technique going on so that we could get the jokes that, that the Farrelly brothers wanted. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. So I'm a child of divorce you made one of the iconic div- divorce movies. Yeah. Squid and the Whale. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know what the, what the Pantheon is, but it's on there with Kramer versus Kramer and a couple others. It's, it's not a feel good movie. It's painful. Um, but what you must get a ton of reaction to that one from, from kids of divorce. Right. I would assume. Yeah, I mean a little bit. It's it's one of those that not everyone has seen, uh, but it it's it, yeah, uh, it certainly was an honest portrayal. Noah Baumbach, and you know he wrote it and he directed it, and that was another one of those singular voice. There weren't three yeah. writers on it. It was one writer. They had just enough money to make it. Um, we shot that thing and. I remember on the day we wrapped the movie, uh, it, it was like, nobody's going to see this. We're not going to get, we had no distribution. This is, well, it was fun working with Laura. And then the Toronto Film Festival got it. Then the New York Festival got it. And then it was off to the races. 
To me, he was like Soderbergh where, you know, his his early movie was so good, you just knew, you know, and, they, and sometimes they'll go in a couple different directions, but you just knew he was going to be involved in some big movies. So anytime he had anything, I was always excited because I love Kicking and Screaming. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And when I was like, oh, he's making a divorce movie? I, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And now he just did it again. It's almost like in a weird way he made. He did. He made. I don't even know if it's a sequel. It's like a cousin. Yeah. Um, but same one. Like, so, And that's probably in the Pantheon, too. But so raw. I mean, it's a topic. It's so funny. So many people get divorced. And yeah, it's not in that many movies. It's not in that many movies successfully either. Yes, I, I and then he cast Anna Paquin as my love interest, which you know Anna and I had done uh, done uh, Fly Away Home when she was I think twelve at the time. Oh now wow! She was, now she was early twenties. <laughs> <laughs> I said Noah. He goes, yes, I just cast her. You know, for those playing along at home. I go, oh, nice, nice. I remember. <laughs> We were shooting a scene where Jesse Eisenberg opens the door and I'm in a bedroom and, and I'm standing there and I got my hands up Anna's shirt and my hands yeah. on her breasts. And and we're getting ready to shoot and Anna's standing there and I'm standing there. And, the, you know, the cinematographer says, one second, I got to change a mag, something. And I'm going, God. And I look out the window. Oh, my God. And I said, Anna. She goes, what? I said, look at the geese. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Uh, uh, the newsroom? Yeah. Two Was it two years or three? I can't even remember. Um, three. Two and a half, but three. Two and a half? Yep. Um, Sorkin's been on this podcast. We did a rewatchables, too. It's a friend of the program. What was your... We, your your voyage, your first voyage with him on a TV show like that, in a real where you're the lead. Um, w- was it going into that? You're like, first of all, this is the closest you can come to actually being on stage, but actually be on TV with the amount of words you probably had to memorize. But what were your expectations versus how it played out? I looked at that as the project that would keep me in the business. I was, I was, I had had enough and I Mm. wasn't going to play the asshole father of some 28 year old who was going to make 10 million and couldn't remember his lines. I wasn't going to be that actor. And so I was going to get out. I was going to be done. And, and then um, we heard about it. And so we pitched me. And Aaron and Scott Rudens, Scott knew me from, from Broadway, got a carnage, I think. And, uh, um, or no, Scott knew me from the hours. Anyway, uh, they met with me at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York. I went right to the top of the list. Aaron had seen, apparently, Purple Rose of Cairo and had really liked me since then. Yeah. So I was, uh, oh, my God, let's meet him. And the only thing that I had to show him was he wasn't sure I could be angry enough to be Will McAvoy outraged. And so you go, okay. And I got tipped to that. The agent said, Rudin says he needs to see you angry. Oh, okay. So we're sitting in the breakfast room with the four seasons hotel and it's all, you know, that. And so I just told a story about something that had happened and, and I ended up slamming the table and, you know, people are turning around looking and Aaron's going, okay, all right. Okay. Just, you know, that's not good. Good, good, real good. And, uh, and I said, look, you know, I'd love to do this, Aaron. And, and, and ever since West wing. And I told him that I said, I watched West wing to watch the writing. Yeah. I watched that writing coming down the hall. I watched that writing in the room. You know, you watch, you watch network with Patty, that's Patty Chayefsky wrote. And you want Patty Chayefsky in that room when you're watching it. You want to know that that was written by somebody like Patty Chayefsky. It's not just William Holden and Faye Dunaway. Great performances, but there's a third person in there. It's the same thing when you read a great novel. You want to know that it's been written by somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing. And West Wing showed me that. And so I was, I looked at it as a great opportunity to get me interested in being an actor again. So when I got the gig, 
um, you know, it was, they only had to tell me once, um, no ad living and memorize it exactly as he wrote it. Hmm. Don't add or subtract a word. Okay. Which you, which you know how to do, right? Well, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's one of your best skills. That's the theater. You know, yeah. you, I mean, that goes from back to circle rep off Broadway, Lanford Wilson. Why are you saying it that way? That's not what I wrote. You know, oh, yes, sir. So you're, you know, and it's also respect for the writer. Yeah. Um, it's, it's only when you get scripts that like three or four writers and with notes from a junior executive that are shoved into there, that's when you got to start ad-libbing and improvising to fucking make it sound like you're a human being. Right. Not something was said. And that, so with, with Aaron, you get to, oh, I'm, I, all I have to do is write it. So, so that was the deal. And, and I told him to tell all the directors because I'd have a different director every week. And that was a different experience. You know, you do a movie, it's one director, you do a TV show, nine episodes. It's usually at least seven directors. Right. I said, you tell every director that with me, it's five words or less. If they come to me, I mean, I'll memorize every word and you'll never hear anything you didn't write. And I'll try to hit what you intended, plus add some other stuff to make it lift. But five words or less, if they if they can't explain it to me and what they want me to do in five words or less, tell them to stay in the chair. That was the deal. That's a good rule. And, and they did. It just stops directors from becoming Orson Welles. And, you know, and, and it's, it, it's, it's the thing of, it's the, just tell me what time it is. Don't tell me how the watch works. Right. So, and that worked faster, slower, sadder, more angry. I remember the second take of um, the greatest, uh, America's not the greatest country in the world speech. Uh, Greg Matola came over and just said, in the second half of it, a little more melancholy. Got it. And that's the mm. take they used. The first take, I was angry all the way to the end. The second take, McAvoy sits back and wishes the country could be that. And that was Greg Matola. Probably coming from Aaron or Greg, doesn't matter. But it was like let five words or less. Just give me that. And 16 things will happen based on that. That was such a polarizing show. Some people loved it. Other people, it became one of the first real Twitter argument shows. Like as, as Twitter started to gain a real voice, which is now has way too much of a voice. In my way opinion. too but, much of a voice. Yeah. Um, could you feel that happening even as, as you were making the show, how polarizing it was? No, we, we were, I remember Aaron, I think we did nine episodes, maybe 10 and, and near the seventh or eighth, I remember Aaron bringing us all together in the newsroom set and just saying, we've been in a bubble for seven or eight episodes and we're almost done. When this is aired, we are no longer going to be in a bubble. So just enjoy this now. Yeah. Because when this comes out, not everybody's going to agree with what I've done. And right. And sure enough, yeah, it's, we took it. We took aim. We took aim at some people at the media. We, you know, some of them listened, some of them didn't. It's an interesting show now, given everything that's happened over the last few years. I almost wonder, like, was that show too early? Was it the perfect time? What would it look like if that show was created in 2019? Is it would it have been impossible to even do that? I don't know. What do you what do you think? What would have been the perfect year to launch that show? I don't know. I think it would be more or less either. I think it would be ignored now. I don't think it could. There's too much noise. Too much noise, and you're not going to stop the media from covering Trump in the first five minutes of every single newscast. That certainly has been the case since the primary leading up to the 2016 election, when when you know, on Meet the Press, when uh, he gets to call in, you have to come in to Meet the Press. You have yeah. to sit across the table from Tim Russert. Uh, now and then, you can call in. And the reason we're going to let him call in is because more people will watch the show in the first 10 minutes if he calls in. So we're going to allow that. And I think Aaron and I, I certainly had an issue with that. Just, just stuff like that. Just like, don't make it easy for these guys. Right. You know? Make them earn it. And Trump would have had to sit across from Chuck Todd or whomever and, 
and and you know answer some questions i i you know that's what you want and i and i think we've got people out there doing that i think they're doing a great job of of uh trying to inform the public in a way that they may did, maybe weren't able to do so before trump came into you know came into our consciousness as a presidential candidate um they certainly are aware of their responsibility now and i don't think newsroom had much to do with that i think they they get it now the comey thing that you're doing now for showtime september 27th the comey rule um did you what did you just like the project or did you feel like you wanted to be part of a project that was tied into something that was happening in the last five years uh, Lanford Wilson, who wrote the play I was in with way back at Circle Rep, um, with Bill and Hurt, um, told me when I was leaving the theater to kind of chase movies, he said, make it matter, make it count. I mean, he wrote it into a script I have that he had written and, and you don't always get to do that. Yeah. But call me mattered. We were going to air this thing before the election you get to play a very controversial figure and it's going to be relevant and it will inform people in a way that maybe they weren't informed in 2016 about what happened, what he did and how it affects us now. That's those, those are all reasons to do something. That's a better project to be in than something that you shoot and then people forget it as soon as it's over. You know, I've been in those too. Hmm. Well, I, I read that you uh, you had to wear lifts to even seem taller, which is funny because you're like the fourth tallest actor in Hollywood. I, I can't believe you had to have lifts. I am. <laughs> it's like Clint Eastwood, then you. <laughs> I don't know. Who else is 6'2 and higher? Jim, Jim Robbins. Tim Robbins. That's another Jim one. Robbins can get up there. Uh, <laughs> get up there. Ben Affleck's like a solid 6'2 and a half. Is he? Good. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, that's about it's it. stunning. It's stunning when you meet your heroes. Uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, uh, Sly Stallone's like five, seven Sly Stallone. You just go, no, I can't, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. No. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I wanted, I, I was looking for anything and I said, I want two inch lifts in my shoes, which will get me up to six foot five. At least I'll feel like I'm six foot eight. Yeah. But then you meet Jim Comey and you're still looking up. So you know, I needed Elton John's platform platform shoes. That's what I needed. <laughs> How does this cut through all the noise? I mean, there's so much Trump-related noise every day. How does this project cut through that as its own kind of thing? I, I, I think people might be curious about what happened, really. Uh, that might lure them to cut through and watch it. Um, I also think it played, Billy cut it and wrote it like a thriller. Yeah. And so it holds as a, it just as a, what happens next? Oh my God, what's What is he going to do now? It holds in that way of storytelling, which I think is a great plus for people to hang on to it and come back for the second night and all that stuff. Um, and I, and I, I also too, I remember I watched it, Bill, and I, I didn't realize as I was shooting it, but when I got done watching it, I turned it off and I said, Oh my God, it was just the beginning. Mm. This was just, we had no idea of the next three years of chaos and madness that would make this look far less than it was at the time. Right. You know, at that, that's what hit me. And I think people will, it'll, it'll, it's like the first, it's like watching Coney rules, like watching the first inning of a baseball game and then turning out and finding out you lost 22 to three. Right. Um, I got a chance to see you on stage in April, 2019 to kill Mockingbird. Oh, I went, I went back. You'll like this. I went back with my, uh, my family, we went to that. And then WrestleMania, like maybe a, a big, day later. So it was, it was, it was big, quite a weekend. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I might've been the only person it, who ripped that off in the same weekend. It's great when tourists come to New York. We always, <laughs> love, we always enjoy it. There's so much for them to do. Uh, I thought the play was just outstanding. And oh, good. I'm not like a huge stage guy. I really am more of a movie TV. I'm an only child. I get it. I get um, it. I thought I, I was just, and I, I saw Sorkin a couple months later because he did a rewatchables with us. And I, you know, when you're praising somebody, it's you never want to go overboard because it gets awkward. I was just like, I was just so impressed with the detail 
of every single piece of it. Like even how they were doing the set and then the actors and just every single piece of it was so carefully, perfectly picked. It was just so impressive. And I, you know, I've been to enough plays where you can kind of tell the difference, but it was just like, was that going to a really good restaurant where everything is just top of the line, you know, where it's like, ah, the waiter was fucking great. Oh man, they took my plates. I didn't even notice. And there's just like 19 things going on. It's just like the highest level of it. And it really felt that way. Did it feel like that to be in it? Um, after we opened. Yeah. And, and that's the hope every time. And it had who's in the cast, who's directing, are the sets good enough? What are they, what's the director doing? Why is he, you know, there's so much that can go wrong so fast. And we had 45 previews. Uh, we opened, we, our first preview was November 1st, 2018. And then we opened, I think on December 13th, like six weeks later, mm. that's 45 warm up shows where Aaron, is that, Scott- is that usual? Like they do, they usually do forty-five warm-up shows. Uh, I, no, but it 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 was a lot. It, it substitutes now for the out of town. In the old days, you'd go play Detroit, you go play Boston, you played Philly, you'd right? Work out all the details, and then you bring it into New York and cross your fingers. Forty-five. It's less expensive to do forty-five previews, mm-hmm. and then bring the cast in every day, and here are thirty pages of rewrites. I mean, I mean, every day we were rehearsing and here and we're putting in rewrites. He's cutting that line. He's cutting that phrase. You have a new cue for that. We want you to stand over here now instead of over there. And we go on at eight. And it's it's I remember one night I went on and I counted them. I had 30 changes. Wow. In one show. And it was just like slalom skiing. You're slalom skiing. I've just did that change. When's the next one coming? And I'm, and you don't even know the lines that you've got that well. You're still right. kind of, you know, and, and that was, that's as hard as, as I've ever worked as an actor and all of us together going through that. And then they start hauling in the critics a week before opening. And so you've got to open seven times right. before you even get to opening night because one of those nights is going to be the New York Times and the Washington Post, and Hollywood Reporter, and they're all coming. So it, it's, there's, it's, and, and for me, you're dealing with Gregory Peck. Right. And you're dealing with an audience that came in. You could feel them in the first weekend of previews. 1,400 people who'd bought their tickets six months ago and were bringing their paperback copy of the book, holding it right here, going, oh, wow. don't fuck this up for me. <laughs> you could feel it. Wow. And then I walk out and usually there's the star applause. Not so much. Not so much because it's like prove it to them. It's prove it, but it's also, he's not Gregory Peck. I knew he wasn't going to be, I have an open mind. I'm still okay. Go ahead. You could feel it. And then you start to go. And then by the end of the first week, it's less of that. You're getting a good buzz, which is the good news on on previews. The buzz is good. Thank God. Let's do more previews. Um, And then about, as I said, about the 100th performance, which for me was somewhere in late January, early February. It takes 100 shows to get on top of it. Oh, that's, I'll say now that that's why I waited. I wanted to make sure you yeah. got the hundred. That's we had, a, we had a bad April. We, we it was all tourists <laughs> and we kind of phoned it in because we knew yeah. WrestleMania was in town. Can we smell the tourism in the stands. Half the fucking audience is going to be at the <laughs> WrestleMania thing. Let's just roll it out there and get out of here. That was April. Right. Yeah. Damn it. No, but it's, it, you know, it takes, it takes a long time to, to be able to ride it and do with, you know, play with it. And, and that, that for me, that was about February. It was such a special experience to go to it. You were fantastic in the play and just everything. And then kind of the hidden subtext to where we are now as a country. And it just, there was a lot going on. And I thought I took my daughter, I think she was almost 14 at the time, but she loved it. And she was just old enough to, it was the first huge, she saw Hamilton, but it's the first like heavy dialogue play she'd seen. And it was, uh, it was pretty cool. So that was like the best way a play could go. Yep. Have you, have you had a play that was just DOA? Like your your opening night and you're like, this is going to bomb. This is a disaster. Because you've been in a few of these. Yes. Um, 
You don't have to off, say the play. No, usually it was off Broadway. Yeah. And, and that was back when the print reviews would come out and they were kind of the 12 print reviews in New York City for your off Broadway show. And you need them. You need them. And you get panned across the board. And it's and, over. And you're in a 150 seat theater off Broadway in Sheridan Square. And there are eight people out there tonight and nine, nine people in the cast. And you, like you always do, you ask the stage manager, if the cast outnumbers the audience, do we have to do the show? And the right. answer, answer was always yes. You have to do the show. Who's the best actor you've ever seen on stage? There are different kinds of actors. I saw Gilgood, John Gilgood and Ralph Richardson do a pinter play. Mm. And that's the English. There was there was so much brilliant technique and timing and not a wasted move. I saw Al Pacino and Pablo Hummel in late 70s, I think. And Al was all over the place. He was he was I had seen Dog Day Afternoon at, yeah. in, in college and that was whatever Al Pacino was doing in that movie. I want to go find out how to do that. And that means I have to go to New York City. And that took me to New York City, that movie. And, um, and then I saw him on Broadway and he was like electric. He was on fire. You didn't know what he was going to do. And, and since learning about Al's approach and process, he didn't know what he was going to do. And, right. and so that those are two different kinds of performances that were, that were equally... You know, I wish I'd seen Olivier on Broadway. I was going to ask because one of my favorite writers is William Goldman, and he always said Olivier was. Well, I forget what play it was, but it was like that was, that was the standard. Yeah, yeah, I, something I, in I, the fifties. I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, The Entertainer, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, congrats on that. That was awesome. Good luck with the, uh, good luck with the Comey rule on Showtime. Thank you very um, much. Thanks for all the entertainment over the years, too. It was nice to meet you and uh, really enjoyed well, your work over the years. I ain't WrestleMania, but I'm not bad. <laughs>